Welcome back to Mama Mystery. I am your host, Kelly. And I am your co-host, Austin. And we are here with another episode of Mama Mystery. You may have noticed that our last episode was a little bit different. It was Mama Mystery Headlines. Oh, we got the different shows now. Yes. So that is um, a new segment that we're doing in addition to our regular programming. So we're going to have our weekly episodes where we have like a 30 to 45 minute story on just one case. Full length. Full length. Um, and you will likely be on it. Me or some uh, co-host. Mm-hmm. And then the headlines will probably just be me, but it'll just be some quick recaps of the stories, the top stories that caught my eye during the week. And then we're shoot to have some Mama Minutes in there where we just discuss some life BS. Yeah, you know, as it comes up. So, so Mama Minutes, Mama Mystery Headlines, and Full Length are the three different shows inside of Mama Mystery. Yes, Mama Mystery, Mama Minute, Mana, Mama Headlines. I can't even mama, say mama, it. Mama, Mama, <laughs> Anyway, I am the mother of podcasting, basically, is what you can gather from this. And the mother of kids. And the mother of kids, who, by the way, one of them, was sent home today from daycare with what might be, we're not 100% sure, but might be hand, foot, and mouth disease. I am like so embarrassed and cringy when I say that, but I think other moms will be able to relate to this because when I... When I heard, you know, that he had a fever and he had like two spots on his hands, I was like, oh my gosh, hand, foot, and mouth. And there's this like stigma with hand, foot, and mouth that it's like a dirty disease or like, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's super contagious and it's because kids touch crap all the time and then put it in their mouths and they just get it. But like, for some reason, I feel this need to defend myself. Like, I swear we bathe him. We scrub his bottles. I scrub his, like his high chair thing with Dawn dish soap, like the the little table that Mm -hmm. goes on it with Dawn dish soap after every meal. Like, we are clean people, I swear. this is news to me because I don't know shit about it. Didn't think it was that big a deal and... But I know there are probably some moms here that are like, yeah, why is that such a stigma? Like the hand, foot, and mouth thing. It's like, does that mean? It's kind of like lice. Like any kid can get lice. But if you say you have lice, people are like, oh my gosh. Or like you could get bed bugs because something hop on your backpack. Yeah. And whatever. That's true. And just travel on home with you. Yeah. Anyway, Augie has... A fever. That's basically the moral of this story. <laughs> yeah, it's just normal, but okay. So anyway, here we go. Are you ready for today's episode? Austin, this episode is insane. I saw a TikTok that somebody tagged me in or sent to me about this, and I was like, holy cow. And I when I first saw this video, I like of just a recap of this case. I literally, my my jaw dropped, and I said, no way. So I knew I had to cover it. You should do a sticker called Jaw Dropper. Remember Jawbreakers? Do you remember, do you remember the, the big, were they gumballs, or like, did you suck on them, or what? Yeah, they were just like a hard candy. Those sucked. Yeah, who was buying those? Everybody. Weird. Remember Mr. Bulky stores that were all over the place? No. Topsies? Topsies, like, are still out. It's like 90s nostalgia. Are still a thing. Yeah. Okay, let's get into it. Are you ready? Let's get into this. We're going to quit wasting time. We waste like 30 seconds, Kelly. Go into the show. Okay. Catherine Jean Furnish was born on October 29th of 1953 to parents Jane and Eugene in Kansas City, Missouri. Ooh, represent. She had, yeah, go Chiefs, by the way. Yeah. 
Anyway, she had three siblings, Susan, Patricia, and Timothy. Her dad, Eugene, or Jean, was a livestock broker, and her mom, Jane, was a stay-at-home mom who earned a bachelor's degree in medical technology from K-State. Jane worked at St. Joseph's Hospital before she had kids. Growing up, Katie was a bit shy and very smart. She loved horses and desperately wanted a pony of her own, but had nowhere to keep one, so she conceded to just getting a puppy instead. Katie was a good girl, always abiding by the rules, and she was vice president of her school's knitting and crocheting club. Katie graduated from high school in 1971 and attended K-State University in Manhattan, just like her mom, and she studied to become a dietitian. Katie met Gary Eastburn when he was when she was 20 years old and Gary was 25. They were both at a singles club softball game in Westwood, Kansas. After the game, some members of the team hung around and drank some beers, and that's when Gary introduced himself to Katie. He was smitten with the girl in the jean shorts and her brown ponytail. The two hit it off and made plans for the following week to play softball again. So they went to the game together, and at the end of the night, Katie admitted to Gary that she was actually engaged. Ooh, that's a problem. Yeah. (laughs) Gary was bummed, and at first, he felt completely defeated before he actually decided to fight for her. He could not let this girl go. So he stuck around as Katie's friend, but certainly pushed the boundaries of the friend zone. And then one day while he was sitting beside Katie, she got a phone call from her fiance and the fiance told her he'd had enough and she needed to either choose him or Gary. So she hung up the phone and then less than a year later, Katie and Gary were married. Whoa. All right. So Gary joined the military after graduating from the University of Missouri. Soon after they had their first daughter, Kara, on May 21st of 1979. Kara was a daddy's girl. She loved Star Wars and had a Star Wars-themed bedspread. She loved gymnastics and baseball. Being in the military made it hard for the Eastburns to firmly plant their roots. So when Kara was born, they were stationed in Goldsboro, North Carolina. Then they were shipped off to Wichita Falls, Texas, and it was here that they had their second daughter, Erin, on November 17th of 1981. Erin was a beautiful, blonde-haired, brown-eyed girl who loved to dance. While Kara was independent and confident, Erin was more sweet-natured, soft-hearted, and just loved to cuddle. Then Gary became the chief of air traffic control at Pope Air Force Base, so they moved to Fort Bragg in Fayetteville, North Carolina. They settled into a ranch-style brick home in Summerhill, which was an upper-middle-class neighborhood mostly reserved for high-ranking officers in the military. In 1985, Gary was forced to leave for eight and a half weeks for Squadron Officer School in Montgomery, Alabama. Gary and Katie both hated being separated but knew that this was something Gary had to do if he wanted to be promoted, and they'd already made plans to move to England where Gary was being considered for a job as a liaison to the Royal Air Force. So in preparation for their move to England, Katie made plans to rehome their dog Dixie, who was an English setter. They worried that Dixie wouldn't survive the move and the quarantine, so they advertised to find her a new home in the Beeline Grab Brag newspaper. It was about a week before Mother's Day, and Katie wrote a letter to Gary, as she often did, and described the home that she ended up finding for Dixie. 
She said that a man came to meet the dog and that he seemed very nice and that he was an animal lover. His name was Tim Hennis, and after discussing it with his wife, Angela, they agreed to adopt Dixie. So on Tuesday, May 7th, Tim drove over to the Eastburn's house to pick up Dixie, and Katie watched as Tim led Dixie to his white Chevette and drove off. So that weekend was Mother's Day weekend, and one of their neighbors, Bob and Jeanette Seafelt, noticed that they hadn't seen the Eastburn girls in a few days. Usually the girls were outside daily, playing around in the yard with Katie always right there watching them. And Bob also noticed that there were multiple newspapers piled up in the driveway and that their station wagon hadn't moved in days. So Bob and Jeanette went up to the house and rang the doorbell to check on the family and make sure that everyone was okay. From inside, he could hear a baby crying, but nobody came to the door, so he instructed his wife to call somebody. Shit, I just realized this is the story that you kind of told me a little bit about, and this is a miserable story. Like, terrible. Mm-hmm. Oh. Okay, keep going. Okay. So he instructed his wife to call someone, and they knew that Katie was an incredibly dedicated mother. There was no way she would just leave her babies home alone. Something obviously wasn't right. So Jeanette's hands trembled as she flipped through the pages of the phone book, searching for the phone number of Katie's 15-year-old babysitter, Julie Kersniak, to see if she'd heard from Katie recently. So Julie tried calling Katie, but there was no answer, so she raced over to the house while Jeanette called the sheriff's office. When Julie arrived, she could hear baby Jana crying and peered through a window to find Jana standing in her crib. She tried to open a window to get in, but Bob warned her, don't touch anything, just in case. Deputy William Toman arrived shortly after Julie did, and he walked around the perimeter of the house to check for any signs of forced entry. But, but when he rang the doorbell, there was no answer, and there was also no crying baby. So at this point, curious neighbors are beginning to come outside of their homes to see what the heck is going on at the Eastburn house. Finally, Deputy Toman pressed his ear up against a window and finally heard the desperate wails coming from baby Jana. So he cut the screen to the window, and as soon as he opened it, he was hit with the unrelenting, unmistakable scent of death. The moment he entered Jana's room, she reached for him. She had been sitting in that crib for three whole days. No food, no water, no clean diaper. She was covered in her own urine and feces. Oh she was sweaty gosh, and dehydrated. And according to doctors, she was just within mere hours of dying. Her teeth had turned black from lack of nutrition, and her eyes were glazed over with heavy bags hanging below them. She had thrown all of her stuffed animals out of her crib, desperate to get out, but for three days, nobody came. Nobody knew. When Deputy Toman finally pulled her out of the crib, he handed her through the window to Jeanette. Jeanette immediately tried to clean her up and put her in one of her husband's T-shirts. She tried to give her some crackers and milk, but Jana just like could not keep anything down because she hadn't eaten in days. Her stomach was probably just mm -hmm. wrecked. She was taken to the hospital and immediately hooked up to IVs, never for a split second letting go of Jeanette. And, and how old is she, just so I'm very clear? She's about two years old. God, you just imagine like when a baby throws their stuffed animal out of the crib and they're upset about not being able to reach their stuffed animal. Mm -hmm. Just that alone will make mm -hmm. them scream. Days? Like, 
days That's and That's heartbreaking. I can't imagine. Days, nights, yeah. no human interaction, no... Yeah. No, not like that's uh, it'd be the scariest thing ever Mm -hmm. for that kid. Yeah, I mean, and I'll touch back on this later. I guess the only thing you have to be thankful for here is that she was so young; she does not remember any of it, and she survived. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, but I mean, (sighs) trust me, I my stomach just churned as I was writing this Mm because all I could think about was Augie, like up in his crib. I mean, we have two other kids too, but. This you know, obviously this one's too close in age. You know, it just hits too close when you have a baby about the same age because you just imagine it. And normally I don't know anything about these cases, obviously, but Kelly has written a couple to get ready to record. Mm-hmm. And we were going to record one night and you said that it was like, you need a little break. And you told me a little bit about the story and I had her stop because I didn't want to know more. But like, I was like, oh man. So yeah. I remember you saying you just wanted some time to like, get away from it for a second. Yeah. After writing this one, when I finished it, I took like two days off of mm-hmm. listening to any kind of true crime. Cause like, I know people ask me a lot of times if this doing this gets to me and like, these are the kind of stories that do mm-hmm. when kids are involved, especially, you know, I'm grateful she's okay now, but I mean, the rest is heartbreaking and it's just, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't even know. So we'll just continue. So Jana's older sister, Erin, was found near her parents' bed. Her throat was cut so severely that she was nearly decapitated. Catherine was found undressed on the bed, dead from multiple stab wounds and apparently a victim of sexual assault. Deputy Toman had to get out of the house, and as soon as he entered fresh air, he fell to his knees and started heaving, distraught by what he had found. He told Bob that he'd found the mother and daughter, but Bob corrected him, saying, there are three children, so one of them has to be missing. Deputy Toman went back inside and immediately found Kara in her bed, covered up with her Star Wars blanket and her throat cut. (sighs) Meanwhile, in Alabama, Gary waited patiently by a phone. He and Katie had a system where she would call once a week to save money from Gary having to call collect. So every Saturday morning, Katie was supposed to call the dorms where Gary was housed, and he dutifully waited by the phone every Saturday morning. But on Saturday, May 11th, the phone never rang. He tried calling himself, but there was no answer, and he convinced himself that maybe they were busy with Kara's gymnastics and they were running late. But by that afternoon, he still hadn't heard from Katie, and his concern began to grow, and he wanted to call their neighbor Bob, but he couldn't remember his last name to find his number. So... He called a friend and asked them to take a look around the house. His friend called back to say nobody was home. And at this point, nobody had found his family. So at this point, he's really starting to worry. So he called the sheriff's department and asked them to leave a message at the house for Katie. So a deputy drove to the house and left a note on the front door for Katie to call her husband. Gary tried to distract himself and calm the frayed nerves that he felt inside, and his roommate reassured him everything was probably fine. Sunday morning was Mother's Day, and he stalked the phone, waiting for it to ring. Surely she would call on Mother's Day. When it finally did, there was a detective on the other end, and deep in his gut, Gary knew. He answered the phone saying, are any of them alive? And the detective responded with, 
there's been a death in the family and you need to come home. And he refused to elaborate over the phone and just urged Gary to get home as soon as possible. Along with the rest of his world, Gary crumbled to the floor. I got the freaking goosebumps. A nearby chaplain took the receiver and received the news that Jana was still alive. He still had one person to live for. Investigators combed through the house, collecting any evidence they could, knowing, however, that the killer already had three days on them. Semen was collected from Katie's body. Hairs were collected from the bedrooms. Fingerprints were collected from the door frames. And luminol was used to detect any evidence invisible to the naked eye. And once the luminol was used, it revealed that the killer tried to clean up his tracks by wiping a bathroom sink, doorknobs, and light switches throughout the house. Also revealed were once bloody footprints tracked throughout parts of the house and even down the driveway. And then there was a break in the case. 20-year-old Patrick Cohn told Deputy Eddie Hollingsworth that he saw someone leaving the Eastburn house in the early morning hours of Friday morning. He told officers that he was walking home from his girlfriend's house at about 3.30 in the morning, and he said, quote, as I was walking, I saw a white Chevette parked on the road. Oh, the dog person. And then I saw this white dude walking down the lady's driveway. I passed right by him and he said, I'm getting an early start to this morning or something like that. And then I watched him get in his white Chevette and drive off, end quote. All I want to say right now is you better tell me this dude at the end of the story got the death penalty. Just wait. So Patrick described the man's face and what he was wearing, a black members-only jacket, a black hat, a white shirt, jeans, and tennis shoes. He was really tall. He was carrying a garbage bag over his shoulder, and his car was parked about 200 yards away from the Eastburn house. Julie also came forward and told investigators, so Julie, remember, is the babysitter. Mm -hmm. She also came forward and told investigators about strange phone calls that she'd get at the Eastburn house while she was babysitting. She said that someone on the other hand would always say, how's the most beautiful girl in Summer Hill this evening? And then she would ask who was calling, but he wouldn't say. And Gary confirmed that these strange calls were happening because Katie was spooked after someone called their house at 4 a.m. one night about a week after he had left for Alabama. The caller said, Mrs. Eastburn, I live around the corner. I'm coming to see you. And Katie asked who was calling, but they didn't respond. So she slammed down the phone and then was too scared to fall back asleep. So together with agents from the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation, Patrick Cohn was able to come up with enough details for a sketch of the man that he said he saw leaving Katie's house that morning. By that Wednesday, there was a special news broadcast about the murders with police announcing their interest in a man who drove a white Chevette who had picked up an English setter from the Summerhill Road the previous week. Tim Hennis and his wife, Angela, were at home with their two-month-old daughter at the time. So they drove together to the police department because Angela's like, this is you. Like, this, they have to be talking about you. We need to go clear your name. Mm -hmm. So they go to the police department in Fayetteville. And when they got there, Tim was taken into a room for questioning. He was questioned for seven hours. And while he was there, he gave samples of his hair, blood, saliva, and fingerprints. 
And when detectives brought Patrick Cohn back in, they showed him pictures of five similar-looking men, one of them being Tim Hennis. And Patrick pointed to Tim's picture with confidence. But without a warrant, Tim was allowed to leave. So that night, police were able to obtain a warrant. They go to Tim's house and arrested him at his house. You wonder, did that dude go home and tell his wife, hey, I'm going to get arrested? I doubt Surely it. not. Yeah, I don't think so either. I just, like, what's going through that moron's head? Yeah. Like, how do you explain this? And why are they looking for you? You know, that's, those are the questions I'd be asking as the and wife. And you're questioned for seven hours? Like, mm-hmm. obviously, they're on to you. So you get home, and yeah, mm-hmm. wouldn't the wife be like, dude, we got, you got some explaining to do. Yeah. And he's just sitting there going, no, it's just the wrong person. Mm-hmm. Like, Yeah. So when they pulled up to his house to arrest him um, and police barged into his house, Tim said, I hope you guys know what you're doing. He was apparently very arrogant. He was very smart. And he police got the sense that, like, this guy kind of knows what he's doing. So they had to be careful. Mm-hmm. Tim's alibi was that he went straight home after picking up Dixie and never saw or spoke to Katie again. But an ex-girlfriend, Nancy Mazur, came forward to investigators and told them that on May 9th, Tim showed up unannounced at her house, knowing that her husband was deployed. But when she turned down his advances, he left. So it left some investigators wondering if maybe because he was turned down, he tried to get it from elsewhere. I mean, he had a two-month-old baby at home, so maybe he wasn't, you know, as as much as I hate to say this, but like either maybe he wasn't interested in his wife because she had just had a baby, or maybe she wasn't interested in him because she just had a baby, and he's like trying to get it from wherever he can. And so, I mean, I see, you know, the thought process behind a motive, a possible motive. Yeah, but by a fucked up person in that regard. For sure, 1,000%. I guess, sure. I mean, Yeah, yeah, I know. It's like you don't get it because you're a normal person, but that's the motive that detectives were assuming once mm-hmm. she came forward. So multiple witnesses came forward with damning evidence against him as well. On Friday morning, after the murders were believed to be occurred, Tim took a black members-only jacket to the dry cleaners. The same type of jacket that Pat... Patrick Cohn recalled seeing a mysterious man wearing at about 3.30 that morning. Also that Saturday, neighbors noticed that Tim was burning materials in a burn barrel for about five hours in his backyard. But possibly one of the most damning pieces of testimony came from a woman who recalled seeing Tim Hennis use an ATM on May 11th at about 9 a.m., When investigators reviewed the transactions from the ATM, they found that Katie Eastburn's ATM card was used at 8.56 a.m. on Saturday, May 11th. So they tracked down the person who made a transaction just three minutes later, and this woman recalled seeing a tall man in front of her in line wearing camouflage pants and getting into a small, light-colored vehicle. A white Chevette. Probably. When Gary Eastburn went through the house looking for things that were missing from the home, he recorded that the ATM card was stolen along with an envelope of cash and a piece of paper with the ATM pin written on it. Tim Hennis had a history of financial irresponsibility. He had been convicted in the past for writing bad checks, and at the time of the murders, he was behind on his rent, which was $310 a month. The total amount he took from the ATM was $300, and wouldn't you know it, according to Tim's landlord, his rent was paid in full the very next day, including the late fee. 
So armed with this evidence, albeit mostly circumstantial, prosecutors felt confident that their case was airtight. And when the jury was presented with the case, they took only 10 hours to deliberate before finding Tim Hennis guilty on all counts. And three days later, he was sentenced to death. So Tim naturally filed an appeal, maintaining his innocence. And while he was waiting in prison, he received a postcard in the mail. The postcard was postmarked for July 8th, which was the day that he was sentenced to death. The letter said, quote, Dear Mr. Hennis, I did the crime. I murdered the Eastburns. Sorry you're doing the time. I'll be safely, safely out of North Carolina when you read this. Thanks, Mr. X, end quote. And the sheriff's office also received a similar letter from someone calling themselves Mr. X. So a few years went by and Gary tried to rebuild his new life with baby Jana. He eventually moved to the UK with Jana in 1988, accepting that job as a liaison to the Royal Air Force. But only a few months after their move, after their move he received a phone call from North Carolina informing him that Tim Hennis won his appeal and was granted a retrial after judges ruled in his favor that the jury may have been prejudiced after they were shown graphic images of the crime scene for an hour and a half before they were left to go deliberate. At the new trial, Tim's defense was ready to fight. They discredited the witness, Patrick Cohn, by listing out his record of criminal offenses, including a stolen a stolen ATM card, being drunk in public, and obstructing an officer. They also picked apart his testimony, pointing out just little inaccuracies, like discrepancies in the weather, in the way he said the weather was versus the way the weather actually was. Like, they're just trying to pick apart his credibility. And another witness for the defense was a tall, blonde teenage boy from the neighborhood with a striking resemblance to Tim Hennis, who routinely walked the neighborhood late at night and even admitted that he was walking around at 3 a.m. on May 10th, 1985. So is this who Patrick could have seen? So two years later, these people can just come in, make up these bullshit witnesses and be like, oh, hey, two years later, we actually found two witnesses that were there. They just didn't know about everything going on. And... They were actually walking. One was walking through the neighborhood at 3 a.m. Like, yeah. like they didn't know that there was a triple murder happening in their own neighborhood until years later. Such a bullshit sounding game. Mm-hmm. Like, like, where did you come from? I you mean, know what? I remember where I was May 10th, two years ago, and I actually witnessed this whole thing. I didn't know what was going on. But yeah, you can bring me into it. Mm-hmm. Like, I just get like my BS meter goes off big time. Yeah, for sure. So the defense also pointed out that the footprints found in the driveway were at least three sizes smaller than Tim's feet. And the blood found at the scene did not match Tim, but... Well, if you remember, real quick, I just want to say, Mm -hmm. remember the Lululemon case where it was like, oh, it was a, a huge boot and where they were looking for this person with a huge boot and the person put on bigger shoes to make mm-hmm. themselves, to throw off the detectives. Yeah, that's a good point. So like, oh, it was a smaller footprint. Mm-hmm. Okay. Who do we, how do we know exactly who those footprints Did they run out on their tippy toes? And so then that looked like it was a smaller, like, like that two yeah. years later. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I want to make up. a point about the blood. 
they said that the blood at the scene did not match Tim's. But I want to point out that testing in 1985, when this crime occurred, did not involve DNA testing. It was type testing. And when you have a crime scene with a predominant amount of the victim's blood, it will be harder to detect the blood type of a potential perpetrator. Type like type O, type A. Exactly. So not blood testing like they do now where it's like matching the person? Exactly. Is that how it does now? Yes. So now they can pull DNA, but back in 1985, all they could say was, oh, this type was blood, you know, type A blood, and the perpetrator has type A blood, or they could say he has type O blood, so it can't be him, or whatever. You know, those are just examples. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know enough about blood, so don't come at me if I'm, like, saying the types wrong. But regardless, they were pointing out that it didn't match Tim. However, of course, you know, if you're looking for a tiny little piece of perpetrator's blood in a huge crime scene, you're going to have a hard time finding it. So that's not to say none of it matched. Mm -hmm. So DNA did not start getting used in criminal cases until 1986, but even then it was really hardly as refined as it is today. And regardless, a pubic hair found on the couch at the Eastburn house also did not match Tim or anyone from the Eastburn family. So the defense examined the remains from the fire that Hennis was seen burning in his backyard after the murders. None of the charred remains involved anything from the Eastburn house. And the members-only jacket that was sent to dry cleaning after allegedly being seen by Patrick Cohn the night of the murders did not contain any evidence of blood. And the solution used by the dry cleaner was not capable of removing blood stains. So real quick question. Was he sitting on death row for the two years? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So when the case was handed to the jury for deliberation, they deliberated for two days before coming back with a verdict of not guilty on all counts. So Tim was exonerated after spending more than two years on death row. By now, his daughter Christina was four years old, similar to the ages of Aaron and Kara. This was a huge blow to Gary Eastburn, who was still trying to rebuild his life after this tragedy. He had met and married a British nurse who became a doting stepmother to young Jana. But the murders of his wife and two daughters would forever haunt him, especially now knowing that nobody is serving time for this heinous crime. So Tim re-enlisted into the army and received three years of back pay, a medal for good conduct, and a promotion to staff sergeant. He was deployed to Saudi Arabia in 1990 and then Somalia, receiving awards and recognition for his service. He and his wife, Angela, who stood by him throughout his stint on death row and his exoneration, had another child together, a son named Andrew. Andrew became involved in Boy Scouts, and Tim was an exemplary scout leader, hosting camping trips and hikes up Mount Rainier with his troop. By 2004, Tim retired from the Army with the ranking of Master Sergeant. What? In 2005, this case was still haunting homicide detective Larry Trotter. He discovered that a sperm sample collected from Katie's rape kit was never tested, and that by now, with all these advancements in DNA testing, it could potentially yield a result in a DNA test. So he collected the samples from the Cumberland County Sheriff's Office and sent them to a crime lab in Raleigh, North Carolina. It took a year for the results to come back, and when they did, it left investigators stunned. The lead investigator, Robert Biddle, Biddle, called Gary Eastburn and said, are you sitting down? 
We got a hit on the DNA. Ma- I got the goosebumps hardcore right now. Like, it matched. It was Hennis. No way. But I'm a full body goosebumps. <laughs> uh, seriously, do you, did you? I Whenever mean, you I, were like coming across this, I have them now. Just saying it, I have them now, Holy and I, I wrote shit. this. I mean, it still hits just as hard. Okay, it's so crazy. hurry up, tell me what else happened. Because of double jeopardy, Tim had. What is double jeopardy? You can't be charged twice for the same crime. No shit. He'd already been exonerated. You can't be exonerated and then charged again for the same crime, despite new evidence. So Tim Hennis already was exonerated, couldn't be tried again, despite new DNA evidence. I just no had to reiterate way. that. However, Austin, the Army has its own set of rules. And according, according to their law, a person subject to the Uniform Code of Military Justice can be tried by court-martial. This granted the military's authority to prosecute Tim Hennis as long as he was an active member of the Army. But Tim had already retired the year prior. So the commanding general of Fort Bragg, John Vines, asked the secretary of the army to approve recalling Tim Hennis to active duty so they could charge him with three counts of murder. And the request was granted. Tim Hennis would now be tried for a third time for the same crime. His trial began on March 17, 2010, and the jury was made up of 14 uniformed men and women belonging to the military, all equal to or greater than Tim's ranking of master sergeant, because that is how court-martial rules work. This time, Tim's defense repeated many of the same arguments in the second trial, reminding the jury of the evidence that exonerated him before. But as the prosecutor, Captain Matt Scott, pointed out, it would have been easy for Tim Hennis to clean up the scene that night. But, quote, in 1985, what he could not have known, what would have come back to haunt him, is the evolution of science, DNA. He left one thing at that crime scene that he couldn't have known to clean up, and that was his sperm, end quote. So Tim's defense argued that Tim and Katie had consensual sex that night and that it wasn't far-fetched for members of the military to resort to extramarital affairs since their significant others were often away on deployment. Well, this was incredibly insulting to a jury comprised of members of the military. They're all sitting there like, dude, how dare you? Like, you're, you're essentially accusing us all of being adulterers to that standard. So the prosecution argued back that Tim Hennis was alleged, alleging to have had consensual... Consensual sex. My jaw is on the floor while I'm listening to this. Keep going. Mm-hmm. Consensual sex with Katie the night he picked up the dog, the only night he admitted to being in her house, which was May 7th, a Tuesday. However, the medical examiner in the case determined that the sperm found in the rape kit were abundant and intact, indicating that they were deposited shortly before her death. Because sperm will deteriorate after a couple days. So the fact that the sperm were still intact was one of the only pieces of evidence that put an actual time stamp on when the crime occurred. And, of course, when he would have been there. Mm-hmm. It only took the jury three hours to deliberate. Three hours. Mm-hmm. To deliberate. And on April 8th of 2010, the jury rendered a unanimous verdict of guilt. And because it was unanimous, every single person on that jury agreed, Tim Hennis would once again be eligible for the death penalty. Good. During the sentencing phase... Still not fair enough, because it should have happened 25 years ago, but... Mm -hmm. 
During the sentencing phase, Katie's husband, Gary Eastburn, took the stand with his new wife, Liz, sitting in the front row. Hang on. Sorry. This part just gets, it just like tugs at my heart. So when he was asked what he missed most about his wife and two daughters, he replied, them. I miss being with them. And I'm sorry, I don't know if there's two better wives in the world that a person could have had and how she can sit there and listen to me talk about a woman I once loved and still do and not hold that against me, end quote. I just... That's crazy. I can't imagine trying to move on after the love of your life is just so violently taking, taken from you and how mm-hmm. you... Sorry. How you move on and how you like still hold as much love for your first wife as you do your next wife, right? And you tell this next wife how much you love your first wife still, mm-hmm. and they listen to you and continue to love you. Yeah, it has understanding. To take, like it has to take such a, a secure and mature and compassionate woman to like be in that place. You said it perfectly, like secure. And compa- yeah, well said. Yeah, and to love Jana like she uh-huh. was her own. So Jana has has given interviews since this all happened. She's an adult now, living in the UK with her dad. Mm-hmm. I'm not with her dad, but like they live in the same town. Uh-huh. And she has given interviews about how her stepmom has been like a wonderful mother to her, and it's all she knows. And like she has felt guilt sometimes for not feeling as sad as everybody else feels because she doesn't remember her mom and she doesn't remember her sisters. And so mm-hmm. the crime doesn't hit her as emotionally as it might Gary, but she sees the pain that it has caused everyone. She's very aware of like the impact that it all had. Um, And, you know, there's videos of her being interviewed by a child psychologist after the murders occurred. And she would be shown a picture of her mommy and she would say, like, mommy at work? Because she didn't understand where, like, what happened to her mom. And she'd kiss the picture. Like, she knew who her mom was. Sorry. It just, like, totally messes messes me up. I'm just sorry for having feelings (laughs) about something that's completely valid. Thanks, babe. So when it came time for the sentence, the panel of jurors decided his fate by saying, quote, all of the members concur and sentence you to be reduced to the grade of E1, to forfeit all pay and allowances, to be dishonorably discharged from the service, and to be put to death. Amen to all of that. And it still isn't right. It's but, still not enough. But good. But it's, it's the How best How old you was he do. at this point? Do you know? Off the top of your head? I don't know off the top of my head. I mean, if he retired six years, assume he's 60, 70. Mm-hmm. I mean, think that's I, fair? I don't even know. But he was sent to Fort Leavenworth, Kansas to await the completion of his sentence. But in court martials, the president is required to sign off on the execution, and that hasn't happened since 1961. So it's more likely that Tim Hennis will die while he awaits an execution. And he has since filed multiple appeals, but with no success. Hennis is the only person to be tried for the same crime three times, to be sentenced to death, exonerated, and then sentenced to death again. His case has become the focus of many publications and TV, editorial pieces, and a book written by Scott Wisenant called Innocent Victims, The True Story of the Eastburn Family Murders. Gary, along with his wife Elizabeth and daughter Jana, permanently relocated to the UK. With Tim Hennis finally behind bars, they were finally able to feel a sense of relief and closure, even though they'll never understand why this happened. 
Sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes, but I'd like to shout out one piece in particular by Nicholas Schmeidel for The New Yorker called Three Trials for Murder that was very well done and the most helpful in my research for this story. Unreal. So just because I was super curious, I just looked it up. Yeah. He was born in 1958. Mm -hmm. Okay. So he's currently 65. And so this happened in 85. Yes. So that means he did it at 27 years old Mm -hmm. and then went on to live for, you know, 30 some more years. Mm Mm-hmm. And the the and, bizarre thing that people have a hard time understanding is that he led this like honorable life afterwards. You know, he w- was given these honors and medals and accolades in the military. He was the scout leader for his Boy Scout troop. I mean, he like never got him got himself into trouble after. He w- he went through life like it shows you what a piece of crap person he was. He went through life with the the images in uh-huh. his head of cutting these people's throats and little girls and, and, and raping this woman and Ugh. leaving this baby in a crib mm-hmm. and went through life just normal. Like, yeah, it's heartbreaking. That's Sickening. a terrible story. Yeah. I'm sorry. Unreal. It is messed up. I knew. See, this is why I had to take time yeah. after. Like, cause I still, even I wrote this, what last week, Austin, like yeah. I, it, and we have like, you know, we've waited and waited to record. And I was like, oh, I know we just need to get this over with. I need to just say this story. But man, it, do, do it's you know hard. anything about how his wife responded whenever he was, whenever no, he was? All I know is that she has like stood by him and believes in his innocence. I don't know if to that this has, day, huh? I don't know if that has changed. I don't know if that's still the case. I, I don't know. I didn't look because I don't care. I just care about the East Burns. Right. Oh my gosh. Unreal. Well, well, well done on the research and everything like always, but gosh, freaking heartbreaker. Mm-hmm. I wish we could end on a positive note somehow, but I really don't know how to bring any positivity to this. Well, actually, I will add, I mean, it's not a positive note, but speaking of positive notes is that on Friday, we will have our second episode of Mama Mystery Headlines. And one thing I am doing with these headline episodes is ending each episode with a positive story of the week, something that, that leaves on a good note, because obviously I don't want to leave you guys after I just totally broke down, um, but I'm going to have to because I don't have anything else. So you ain't got anything else to talk so about. You guys are going to want to leave. Friday. Come back on Friday and I will tell you, you know, updates from the week, true crime stories from the week, but I will leave you with a story that's just going to make you feel all good inside. I promise. I like that. Okay. Mama. Mystery. 